Let's, let's first uh, place this in the larger context of John's gospel. And going back to chapter 5, um, chapters 5 through 10, John is showing us who Jesus is through the lens of the Jewish holidays. Um, so in John chapter 5, he is showing us who Jesus is through the lens of Sabbath. John chapter 6, he's showing us who Jesus is through the lens of Passover. Or at least the Passover is, is part of that background. John 7 to 9, Jesus, John is showing us Jesus through the Feast of, of Tabernacles. Chapter 10, um, the backdrop, backdrop is Hanukkah. And now we come to chapter 11, and Jesus is approaching the greatest of all Hebrew holidays, Passover, because this is the holiday that celebrates God's deliverance of his people through the blood of a lamb. And that's, that's going to be the backdrop for the rest of, of John's, uh, for much of John. Uh, our story today acts as a prelude to all of this. John 11 has five scenes. We're going to look at four of them. Scene number one, verses one to 16. In fact, if you read the verses right before John, the last verses of, of chapter 10, we see that Jesus retreats from Jerusalem for the simple reason that Jerusalem has not been good to Jesus. He's been put on trial. He's escaped death two times. So the text says that Jesus went to the other side of the Jordan. Now, I want you to see the geography of this story because I think it helps tell the story a little bit. First, this town, Bethany, where John chapter 11 takes place, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, let me show you where that is. So this is modern-day Jerusalem. If you see the gold dome in the middle, that is the Dome of the Rock, the third uh, most holy Muslim site in the world. That, though, is where the temple was in the day of Jesus, right there. Now, if you keep going, you're looking east. Uh, you would actually drop down into a valley, which is called the Kidron Valley. And as you made your way up, you'd go through what's called Gethsemane, and you'd be making your way up a hill uh, where there's like a Washington monument at the top of that hill, that is the Mount of Olives. Uh, that is the Church of the Ascension because that is where Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, that is also the place where Jesus says he's going to return. So you can look at that right now and say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Um, on the other side, though, of that mountain, Mount of Olives, Going down that hill just a little ways is the village of Bethany. And so Bethany is on the outskirts or outside of Jerusalem, but very close to it. Um, I also want to show you the proximity of where Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan to Bethany. And I found this wonderful slide. It does say... Getty images in it, but it was too still wonderful for me not to use because it's hard to find a photo this clear that shows you the outskirts of Jerusalem, and Bethany would be just to the right of that, and going east through the desert to the Dead Sea, 
And on the other side of the Dead Sea is Jordan. So if, you, if, if the picture continued this way, the Jordan River comes right into the Dead Sea. Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan. The difference between that and Bethany is 15 miles. He's close. Bethany in Hebrew, Bethany, means house of the afflicted. Scholars think Bethany is most likely a leper colony, which is why it's called House of the Afflicted. In fact, Simon the leper is another person that lives in, in Bethany. Um, and this is what they did in that day. If you had leprosy, you were quarantined to live outside the city. So in this case, uh, the city being Jerusalem, Bethany is that quarantine city where lepers were uh, supposed to live. This is what I want you to get in your mind. When Jesus makes all these trips to Jerusalem for all these feasts, where does he stay? He stays in Bethany, house of the afflicted, in this home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he every day probably goes into the temple and teaches, but then every night retires at, at this home and see what Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and if Simon the leper is their father, what they provide Jesus is a home away from home, a safe place for Jesus to retreat every single day, which is why our text says Jesus has such intense love for this family. So when tragedy strikes this family and Lazarus gets sick, deadly sick, of course they're going to send word to Jesus. And they say, Lord, the one that you love is sick. Now I want you to think about all that is even in that statement. Lord, the one you love is sick. People whom the Lord loves do get sick. People whom the Lord loves, they suffer. They endure loss. They experience tragedy, and eventually, they die. So don't ever listen to the lie that if something bad happens to you, that God doesn't love you or God is against you. God loves us in our loss, in our sufferings, and through our loss, and through our sufferings. And if that is hard for you to swallow... Jesus even pushes this further. Look at verses 4 to 6. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Wait, it says he loved them and then he stayed? He just waits? That makes no sense. But now put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha because in their minds they know that Jesus is only a half day 
walk away from where they are. Like, where are you? Why are you not here? What's taking so long? Why are you not coming, Jesus? And with each passing day, they wait and they wait. And in their waiting, they probably feel utterly helpless as their brother sinks into death. Have you been there? Some of us in this room are there right now. You're sinking physically. You're sinking emotionally. You're sinking spiritually. You're sinking financially. You're sinking into loneliness. You're sinking into anxiety. You're sinking into fear. You're sinking into hopelessness, despair. Do you know that those are all symptoms of a greater problem? Our greatest problem is death. And see, we've been so trained to, to not think about death that we think that our greatest problem is a chaotic election or what's happening in our world or losing a job or having some dream shattered. But once death enters your reality, all your other problems pale in comparison. And some of us here know that reality very well. That nothing stings like death. Nothing hurts more than death. Death is what elicits our deepest fears and causes life's deepest wounds. And I was thinking about this this week. As this applies to me. Someday I'm either going to bury my wife Libby or she's going to bury me. My parents, someday I'm going to bury them, or they're going to bury me. My kids, someday they're going to bury me, or I'm going to bury them. I mean, these are sobering thoughts, and I know you're thinking, like, why did I come to church to think about this? (laughs) Because it's real. It's real. And, and the Bible doesn't even just teach that death is something in the future, but it teaches us that right now, death is at work in our entire world. I mean, God explains that reality right in the beginning of the story when he says, Adam, do not eat of this tree, because if you eat of it, you will surely die. And then Adam and Eve eat of the tree, and it's not like that day they all of a sudden just fell down dead, but that day they became dead men walking. In all creation, along with Adam and Eve, were cut off from the source of life, and death now reigns in everything God made. And we're born into this. We're born into this being cut off from God, separated from his presence. And as long as sin is enthroned in our hearts, we are disconnected and dislocated from the light of life. We too are dead men walking. That's why I love the Bible so much. Because the Bible can talk about this. It can address it. In fact, the Bible is the story 
first and foremost, about what God is going to do about death. How God left comfort, how he left the bosom of his father, how he took on flesh, how he came across all worlds, how he put his feet in our mess, in our chaos, in our cancer, in our sadness, in our hurt, in our funerals. And here is Jesus in our text, leaving the safety of the other side of the Jordan. And he's making his way to Jerusalem at the risk of his life. And he enters Bethany, the house of affliction. And he just immerses himself in all the brokenness and the pain and the despair. And as this disciple Thomas says these words, he's going to die. He's going to die. Let us go die with him. And the disciples follow him. That's a lot to think about. What about us? Are we going to live our lives retreating? Or like Jesus, will we incarnate ourselves in the pain and the brokenness of our world? Will we follow Jesus to Bethany, to the house of the afflicted, to the lepers, to the hurting, to the broken, to a funeral? Or are we just going to continue to just cling to our life, cling to our stuff, cling to our comfort. If we do, we're not following Jesus. That's the end of scene one. Scene number two is verses 17 through 27. When Jesus finally arrives on the scene... Mary and Martha are four days into what Jews call to this day a sitting Shiva. A sitting Shiva, uh, Shiva means uh, seven, and sitting is to sit for seven days. So this is when a family member dies, this is how Jews mourn that Death by immersing themselves in the pain of that loss by sitting in their house for seven days. This goes all the way back to the death of Jacob. In Genesis chapter 50, when Jacob dies, it says that Joseph and his brothers for seven days sat and wept and sackcloth and ashes lamented the death of their father, Jacob. So even to this day, um, Gabe, my oldest, his junior year, one of his classmates died, passed away, and, and, and that classmate was a friend of his and was Jewish. And sure enough, for seven days, they did a sitting sheva um, where, again, the mourners don't shower. Um, they, they, they do their version of sackcloth and ashes uh, they sit in their house as low as they can. Uh, people that come to mourn with them are not allowed to say anything unless the mourner addresses them first. I think there's a lot that we can learn from the Jews and our Jewish roots. 
I think we like to hide our pain. We like to dress our pain up. We like to try to beautify it. The Bible teaches us to wear it, sackcloth and ashes. The Bible teaches us to immerse ourselves in it and to not, instead of pretending that it's not there, um, to, to express it, to lament it. I'm grateful for our Jewish roots in that regard. Now, the moment that Martha gets word that Jesus is on his way, she breaks protocol from her sitting Sheva, runs from her house, runs to Jesus. Can you see her? Martha shows up all through the Bible, or all through the Gospels. This I know about Martha. She's strong. She's aggressive. She's godly. And I see her running with all her might, profoundly sad, crushed, but also angry, probably furious. Why? Because she confronts Jesus. The moment she gets to him, she says, Lord, if you had been here. And I want you to hear what she is saying. Jesus, where were you? Why weren't you here? Why did you wait so long? Why did you allow this? In my years of ministry, I had the privilege, and it truly is a privilege, to walk alongside people who have lost spouses or family members. And, and oftentimes they will say to me, in the privacy of my home, I cannot believe what comes out of my mouth. They'll say, like, it, it, it just scares me. Like, sometimes I, I, I'll be in my room and I'll just start yelling and screaming. And sometimes obscenities will come out of my mouth towards God. Can you see the childlike faith in that? You know, my family, we always say our love is loud because we yell and scream a lot in our house. Um, and we yell and scream for the most part, not because we don't love each other, because we don't believe in each other, but because we actually do love each other and we do believe in each other. Because it's people that you believe in, it's people who you trust, it's people who you deeply love. These are the ones who have the greatest capacity to let us down. And see, God has broad shoulders. He knows what we are. I mean, this is why he changed Jacob's name to Israel, which means wrestle with me. He's saying to Israel, I want you to be a people. I want you to wrestle with me. I want you to scream. I want you to yell. I want you to lament. Because that's childlike faith. I love how Jesus moves into Martha's pain. He moves into her strength with his own strength. He speaks truth to her. In verse 23, he says to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha then right away just responds, uh, boldly expressing her hope. 
Jesus, I know my brother will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus looks at her and declares, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes this, though they die, yet will they live. Martha, do you trust me? And I love this because in this moment, as Martha comes to Jesus strong, Jesus just magnifies himself. I mean, almost like when Superman, Clark Kent, takes off his, his shirt. And it's like Jesus is putting his cape on. And he's telling Martha, Martha, I win. I'm the victor. Even over death. Even death doesn't get the last word. I do. And this is exactly what Martha needs. In this moment, she needs someone to speak truth to her, to reaffirm the hope that is already in her heart. And she's really like so many of us when, when, when tragedy and, and pain and especially death hit us. We often go to the same place that Martha goes. We start thinking, if only Jesus, Jesus, if only you had been here, this, this wouldn't have happened, or if only this had happened, or if only that had happened, or if only I had done this or not done that. And we start beating Jesus up, and soon we beat others up, and in the end we beat ourselves up just thinking that somehow... I love what Jesus does. He gets her mind off the past, where she regrets the past, and gets her to look to the future when he says, your brother, Martha, will rise again. And then he connects that future hope to the present reality when he says, I am. I am. Not I will be. I am the resurrection and the life. And so while the Bible teaches us that death right now is at work in our world, it's at work in us, life right now, resurrection life, is not just future. It is at work in our world right now. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? We sang about hope. This is the greatest hope there is. Then why are we shrinking back today from pointing people to this hope? Why are we silent about Jesus and the resurrection? People are desperate, they're lost, they're lonely, they're confused, they're empty, they're hopeless. Why are we not boldly speaking the good news that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? I mean, the, mes the, the, the message of resurrection is revolutionary. It's explosive. It, it's the message that changed the world 2,000 years ago. When you read the book of Acts, the first two messages that are preached are about the resurrection, and 5,000 people were baptized. 
And you re- keep reading the, the book of Acts and you see how this, this message resulted in this explosion of joy and life and transformation. So much so that, that, that as you read, it's, it, it's not so much that the church is hitting up the world with the good news of Jesus, but the world is coming to the church and they're saying, what's going on here? And they just say, Jesus, he lives. And they're like, where does he live? He lives in us. He lives in me. And then another part in Acts, it talks about how the whole world shook because of this reality. Is the world quaking today? Does Jesus live? Does he live in you? The end of scene two. Scene number three, verses 28 through 35. So Martha approaches Jesus aggressively and and boldly, but Mary, the sister, retreats. She keeps to herself. And it's not that she isn't just as hurt or, or just as crushed as Martha, probably even just as disappointed in Jesus and, and, and upset. But, but Mary is a softer personality. She's more quiet. She avoids. And she only comes when Jesus asks her. Look at verse 28. It says, And Martha went back and called her sister Mary aside and said, The rabbi is here. He's asking for you. I love this. When Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him and fell at his feet. Every time Mary shows up in the Gospels, and it's more often than you realize, every single time she is at Jesus' feet. And I look at Martha, and I look at Mary, and I think, church, if you're, if you're looking for marching orders today, just get up and run to him. Run to him and fall at his feet and worship him. Now, I love uh, how Jesus moves into Mary's pain because Mary says the exact same thing to Jesus that Martha does. She says, Jesus, if only you had been here. And Jesus still treats Mary altogether differently than he treated Martha. Instead of preaching a sermon, Jesus says nothing. In fact, the text just says a verse that was one of the first verses that many of us memorized because it was the shortest verse in the Bible. (laughs) Jesus wept. That's all he did. In fact, this word for wept here uh, means to break down and to sob. Can you see Jesus? His body shaking, falling apart with tears. I 
And I want us to see this because Jesus with Martha is, 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 is so triumphal, uh, but yet with Mary, he, he becomes so weak. And, and people, you know, they ask me quite a bit when they have to go to, to a funeral, okay, what, what, what do I say when I'm there? And look at Jesus here with Mary. You don't have to say anything. You just have to weep with them. The Bible says weep with those who weep. Just be present. Be close. And then I was thinking about our world today uh, and, and, and how our world is in so much pain right now, how our, how our world weeps, um, where our world hurts, where our world is in pain, there is where the church needs to just be present. And this is why we gather here on Sunday mornings, and, and I, get, I get emails, okay, and I get it because of all the politics, and I, I, I just want to say this once and for all. We are not gathering here uh, because of a president or a governor to, to react to anything like that. That is not us. We are gathering on Sunday mornings because the Bible mandates that God's people gather. And you guys have no idea how many people right now need what the church is supposed to be. We are a hospital for hurting people. And you have no idea how many people every Sunday, sometimes with tears in their eyes, they look at me and they say, don't you ever close these doors on a Sunday morning again. I need this place. Now, there's a big clash today between liberals and conservatives. No amen to that? <laughs> and it exists everywhere. It exists in the church. It even exists in, in, in how we look at Jesus. I mean, liberal Christians a lot of times want a human Jesus without his deity. They want a gracious, merciful Jesus. They, they love the Jesus that we see how he's interacted with Mary. A Jesus with tears, but not truth. Conservative Christians, on the other hand, oftentimes want a cosmic Christ. They, they, they want a Jesus who is Lord over all, who is judge of the universe, who is king of kings, uh, without all of this frail humanity, they want a Jesus of truth, of absolute truth, but no tears. And some of us today resist that Jesus is the truth. He is triumphant truth. He is absolute truth. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the exclusive truth. Some of us resist that. Some of us resist that Jesus is merciful. That he's someone who falls apart at funerals and eats with traitors, prostitutes, and sinners. The Bible teaches us he's both. That he's both the lion and the lamb. And we need to accept him as both. Because we need him to be both. Not only did he become like us in every way, weak, vulnerable, broken... But as the king, he has something to do about it. So 
I want us to lay down these hanging on to a liberal or a conservative notion of Christ, and I want us to embrace a biblical Jesus who is both lion and lamb, both truth and tears. And this is the Jesus that we don't just embrace, but it's the Jesus that we need to be to our world. We need to know when we are to be truth. We need to know when we are to be tears. And the sign that we're probably getting it right is that the world will not like us. It will hate us and want to destroy us. That's the end of scene three. Scene four, verses 36 to 44. When people ask, read this, the, the one question, it's kind of the obvious question that's always asked. Okay, so if Jesus knows in moments his friend Lazarus is going to walk out of that tomb, why is he weeping? Answer, verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how Jesus loved him. That's why he's weeping. And I don't think anyone in the room right now, I don't think anyone who's watching right now can comprehend fully the love that God has for us. How his heart is so bound to us. I mean, do you remember recently when we looked at the book of Hosea and Hosea chapter 11 when God is trying to describe his love for Israel in this chapter, even though Israel has rebelled against God, has gone its own way and put its love in 101 different things. God says to Israel, Israel, I'm your father, you're my son. I taught you how to walk. I bent down to feed you. I lifted you to my cheek. I raised you. And yes, you have rejected me, but my heart Burst with love for you, Israel. I cannot let you go. See, and parents understand the, the, this love because when our kids come into the world, it really is like a ball and chain. I mean, our hearts are so bound to them. When they're happy, we're happy. When they're sad, we're sad. Uh, when, when, when they're high, we're high. When they're low, we're low. In fact, I, I, I think I struggle more when my kids struggle than they do. I, I, I feel the hurt more than they feel the hurt. It's just a fraction of how much God loves us, how his heart is so bound to us. When we hurt, his heart weeps. In Psalm 56, God says, every one of your tears I have stored in a bottle. Not one of our tears is wasted. And our tears probably break God's heart more than our own. And this is why Jesus is weeping. They say, see how much he loved him. And love this deep has a furious quality to it. In verses 33 and 38, this is what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
And then in verse 38, says the same word, once more deeply moved, Jesus came to the tomb. I love the NIV, but it's trying to take the edge off a word that means rage. Jesus is furious. He's become like a raging bull. Now the question becomes, why is he so incensed? Especially when he knows that Lazarus is going to walk out of that tomb in just a moment. Because this is not the world Jesus made. He didn't make a world with suffering and hurt and pain and funerals. And he is raging. And it's not just the funeral of his good friend Lazarus, but he's, he's looking into all of time all the funerals, all the tears. And he's like a raging bull. Have you ever wept at a funeral? This is why Jesus is mad. He loves us. He loves us. And I was thinking this week, Someday, I will either be weeping at Libby's funeral or she will be sitting there weeping at mine. And one of us will have to take hold of this verse and drink deeply of the assurance of how much Jesus loves us. And praise God the Lamb of God is also the Lion of Judah. And like a raging lion, he approaches Lazarus' tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And do you know what it cost Jesus to say those words? Well, that's the fifth scene that we're not going to look at. But when the temple authorities hear about this, they meet and they decide this Jesus must die. And Jesus is no dummy himself. He knows what it's going to take for him to get his friend out of the grave means he is going to have to go into the grave. To end his friend's funeral, he will start his own. And this is the kind of world that sin created. It's a world that the more you love, the more you suffer. As the song says, love hurts. C.S. Lewis says it even better. This quote, at least I think C.S. Lewis says it better. To love 
To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. And the one who loved the most is the one who suffered the most. And he did that for you. Do you see how much he loves you? Do you see Christ weeping for you? Do you see his outrage at all the broken stuff in your life? Do you see how the lion is willing to become a lamb, the greatest, the lowest, dying your death, absorbing in himself all your sin, all your vile, all your corruption? Do you see how he went into the grave so that you could come out of the grave? See, and when we see this Christ, when the eyes of our heart behold him, would we be like Martha and run to him and trust him? Would we be like Mary and fall at his feet and worship him? Because when we do, all the broken pieces in our life start to come together and resurrection, real resurrection begins. And here's the evidence. The evidence that resurrection life is working in you is that you begin to look like him you begin to live like him, you begin to love like him, you begin to move into the brokenness of our world with tears, you have his outrage for all the things that are, are wrong and messed up in our world, and you have the capacity to suffer much because you love much. And Lazarus' empty tomb points to our hope to Christ's empty tomb. And think about what Christ's empty tomb means. It's what Jesus said at the very beginning. Our death will not end in death. Or as Job says in Job 19, he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and one day his feet will stand upon the earth. Most literally, his feet will stand on my grave, and he will call, come out. Too good to be true. Who could make this up? God, open the eyes of our heart to see you, to see you, Jesus. And God, give us this future hope that is based on this present reality 
where you say, I am the resurrection and the life. And God made that. God made May that just explode in our lives and out of our lives into a world that so needs you. In Jesus' name, amen.